Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. The economy is shrinking. That's reflected in today's data. This, coupled with red-hot inflation and soaring gas prices, ramps up pressure on the White House and Congress to act. What are they doing about it? We'll take a look. A rancher is offering Elon Musk 100 acres of land for free to reallocate Twitter's headquarters to Texas. He says Musk's takeover of the company could change the dynamics of this country. America's waking up. Uh, I feel a change in the air. It's not yet clear what exactly the new so-called disinformation board will be doing and what its authority will look like. Some are skeptical of the new board and its leadership. Former President Donald Trump is fighting back after getting hit with a $10,000 a day fine. But New York's Attorney General says he must pay. A federal informant was found dead on Monday in L.A. He had worked with federal authorities on a case involving former President Donald Trump. President Biden today is asking Congress to approve $33 billion to support Ukraine against Russia. That is in addition to the $13.6 billion approved in March. As the war in Ukraine continues with no end in sight, the Biden administration is seeking to provide more equipment, weapons and aid to the Ukrainian government. The latest funding request is supposed to support Ukraine's defense for the next five months. It would supply about $20 billion in military defense equipment and weapons, $8.5 billion in economic assistance to the Ukrainian government, and $3 billion in humanitarian aid. Inflation is soaring to record highs. One major driver of high inflation is the price of gas. How are Democrats in control of Congress responding to this pressing issue with a push for more government oversight? Here's NTD's Melina Weiskup with the details. That shining a bright light on dark energy markets in, is a very high priority now. And they need fines and penalties that will bring about corrective action. That's the crux of the Democrats' main proposal to lower gas prices. High gas prices raise the cost of other products, too. I don't think the Republicans are blaming Democrats. I think they're blaming the oil companies. They're, they will blame all of us if we don't do something about uh, the fossil fuel industry. Pelosi tossed out a previously floated idea of a gas tax holiday, which would have temporarily suspended the federal tax collected on gas purchases. Uh, we have now evidence to think that the oil companies would pass that on to the consumer. Their proposed legislation instead is to give the Federal Trade Commission more oversight ability to investigate what they call price gouging. Republicans have argued that encouraging more domestic oil production will lower gas prices and have urged the White House to change its policies. Here's what Congressman Graves previously told NTD. This administration came out and said we're going to increase costs associated with production. We're going to increase regulations. We're going to block you from building pipelines. So we don't really have options available to us except for cuts in supply, which then causes skyrocketing prices. Democrats were pressed on this and again pinned the blame on oil and gas producers. Here's the bottom line. They're not even using the money for domestic energy production. They're using it for stock buybacks. It's time for the FTC to roll up its sleeves and drill down on what's going on at the big oil companies. The bills are close to being finalized, but even if it does pass the Democrat-controlled House, it's unclear if it would have enough Republican support to pass the Senate. And even if it does pass Congress, it won't have an immediate effect in lowering gas prices. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. The Department of State says they're witnessing a trend of rising digital authoritarianism, with some countries limiting freedom of expression. Today, the United States and more than 60 partners around the world launched the Declaration for the Future of the Internet. The Declaration's principles include a commitment to protect human rights and the free flow of information. The Declaration says the United States and partners plan to work together to promote this vision and its principles globally. Also included is the promotion of an affordable and accessible Internet. China and Russia did not join in the Declaration. Just days after Twitter accepted Tesla CEO Elon Musk's offer to purchase the social media firm, 
A Texas rancher is offering the billionaire 100 acres of land for free to move Twitter to the Lone Star State. NTD's Chenny Wu has the story. With billionaire Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter earlier this week, comes the possibility that the social media company's headquarters could join Musk's other three companies, Tesla, SpaceX and the Boring Company in Texas. And one Texan rancher has made a proposal supporting that move. Jim Shortner is offering Musk 100 acres of land worth an estimated $10 million for free. He tweeted the offer Tuesday, asking Musk to move the Twitter headquarters to Shortner, Texas, an area 38 miles north of the state's capital, Austin. But why? America's waking up. Uh, I feel a change in the air. Shortner believes that Musk's takeover of Twitter could change the dynamics of this country, saying that less censorship could promote communication and understanding between people from opposite sides of the political spectrum. You may not agree with me, I may not agree with you, but we need to have a dialogue. And so I, I just really like what Elon's doing. Texas Governor Greg Abbott tweeted about Shortner's offer, adding that he would declare the area a free speech zone and maybe even rename it Twitter Texas. Shortner adds that the move would promote the economy and support the local community. Uh, it'll take a little work, but uh, this area is growing already and there's a lot of work been done the last 20 years, so I think we're ready to go. Musk has yet to respond to the offer. Chenny Wu, NTD News. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene is rolling out a free speech act to abolish Section 230. Plus, what's she saying about Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter, where her personal account is still banned? NTD's Iris Tao has more. I'll be definitely appealing for my Twitter account to be reinstated. Standing beside a printout of her suspended Twitter account, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene is introducing a bill to abolish Section 230. Today, a small group of big tech, tech firms facilitate the majority of the world's debate. They decide who sees what and who can speak. Titled the 21st Century Free Speech Act, Green's measure would eliminate Section 230, which protects online platforms from liability, including lawsuits over free speech. She says it would be replaced with a common carrier approach. Under which internet service providers can remove harmful content while ensuring access for everyone. The announcement comes on the heel of Elon Musk's Twitter takeover, and Green's inviting the Twitter boss-to-be to talk with her in Washington, D.C. I'd be happy to put together a roundtable of all the most brilliant people who have been unjustly banned from Twitter, and he can see for himself the urgent necessity of doing right by them. Green's personal Twitter account was permanently suspended for violating the platform's misinformation policy. And critics are raising concerns about a further spread of misinformation following Musk's Twitter buyout. But Green says, I don't believe in this whole misinformation thing. That's people expressing their own views, their own opinions, and that's their freedom of speech. And the congresswoman told NTD that it's not only her who's been targeted. Uh, there's been many people, I, I think, I wouldn't even say we possibly know the number, who have had their accounts permanently banned and have been censored, uh, and it, it's no accident. And as for who will be invited to the proposed roundtable with Elon Musk, Green said she's putting together a list of people who have been almost deleted from public life, such as Milo Yiannopoulos and Alex Jones. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. Today, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki was asked what exactly the administration's new so-called disinformation board will be doing and what its authority will look like. Saki said she didn't have specifics. Some are skeptical of the new board and its director as well. Democratic Representative Lauren Underwood says disinformation is a huge threat to our homeland and often targets minorities. She asked Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas what he's planning to do about it. Mayorkas says the new disinformation board will combat these threats and others ahead of the 2022 midterm elections. Critics are saying the Disinformation Governance Board is a real-world ministry of truth. That was the name of the propaganda department in George Orwell's book, 1984. Disinformation expert Nina Jankowitz will head the board as executive director. Some say she's too partisan for the position. Nina Jankowitz, who somebody said the uh, Hunter Biden laptop story was basically Russian propaganda, Russian agitprop. Mark Meckler is the president of the Convention of States. 
He says the best solution to disinformation is informed citizens who do their own research. I think any time that the federal government gets involved or even state governments in telling us what's true and what's not true, then what you risk is that the party who's control of the government controls what they tell the people is true. I think that's just a very dangerous anti-free speech position. We reached out to Homeland Security but didn't hear back before broadcast. New data shows that nearly 400 CDC employees have not received a COVID-19 vaccine. The CDC declined to give the exact figures at first, and the information was released only after the Epic Times filed an appeal with the Department of Health and Human Services, the CDC's parent agency. A Freedom of Information Act officer at the CDC told the Epic Times that as of April 12th, 382 workers are unvaccinated and another nine have received only one dose of the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine, meaning they do not qualify as fully vaccinated. This comes as President Biden's vaccine mandate for federal workers is set to take effect on May 31st. The CDC disclosed that the agency has granted zero requests for mandate exemptions, but didn't say what would happen to unvaccinated workers who don't have an exemption. They also didn't explain why no exemptions have been given. One day after a New York Supreme Court judge fined Donald Trump $10,000 per day for not responding to a subpoena, Trump's attorney has filed an appeal. She questions whether the fine serves any purpose. NTD's Arlene Richards reports. Donald Trump said in a court filing yesterday that he has already responded to a subpoena from the New York Attorney General, Letitia James. He said the attorney general hasn't shown she suffered any loss and questioned whether the court's $10,000 a day fine was appropriate. James had said in her contempt filing the fine amount should be sufficient to coerce his compliance. After Trump's appeal, she said in a statement, The judge's order was clear. Donald J. Trump is in contempt of court and must pay $10,000 a day until he complies with our subpoenas. We've seen this playbook before, and it has never stopped our investigation of Mr. Trump and his organization. This time is no different. If the former president loses this appeal, the attorney general could seek criminal contempt charges. Under New York law, James can ask the court to punish Trump for criminal contempt, which is a Class A misdemeanor. If convicted of a misdemeanor, Trump could face up to a year in jail or an additional fine. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. A federal informant was found dead in Los Angeles on Monday. He worked with federal authorities to investigate links between former President Donald Trump and Deutsche Bank. The Los Angeles County Coroner's Office pronounced Val Brokesmith dead at 7 a.m. Los Angeles Police Captain Kenneth Cabrera told the Los Angeles Times that officials don't suspect foul play. And the Los Angeles School Police Department said it appears that Brokesmith was homeless. The coroner's office did not elaborate on his cause of death, according to local outlets. Wednesday marked Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer's last day on the bench hearing oral arguments. Breyer is a Bill Clinton nominee. He served on the bench since 1994. He announced in January plans to step down at the end of the current session, which will likely come in late June or early July. With his voice cracking with emotion, Chief Justice John Roberts praised Breyer on Wednesday. He said the other justices leave the courtroom with deep appreciation for the privilege of sharing the bench with him. Are Asians being discriminated against? That's the question facing many students and their parents here in the U.S. And it's going all the way to the Supreme Court. Just Monday, the court said it would allow a Virginia public high school's admissions policy to continue despite a group that challenged it and said it's discriminatory. The case is the latest in a legal battle in the U.S. over school admissions policies that affect the racial composition of campuses, also known as affirmative action. Now adding to the discussion, the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research released a report today on affirmative action. And I spoke with the study's author, Robert Verbruggen, to learn more. We're delighted today to be joined by Manhattan Institute fellow Robert Verbruggen. Robert, you've just published a new report on trends in Asian enrollment at U.S. colleges. What are your major findings? 
Well, right now there's there's a lawsuit against Harvard that the Supreme Court is considering, um, alleging that Harvard discriminates against Asian applicants. Basically, it treats them worse than white applicants with the same credentials. Um, and as this debate uh, over over the Asian discrimination issue has um, grown over the past decade or so, one of the main pieces of evidence that a lot of advocates have pointed to is the fact that as Asian uh, as the Asian share of the general population has grown over the past several decades, um, the Asian share at elite colleges like Harvard. Um, kind of stalled out. The purpose of my report is to provide an update of that, to take the, the data through the present and also to, to expand it and show what's happening at colleges in general. So what I find is that as the Asian share of the population has grown, um, the Asian share at most types of colleges have grown too. But at the very most selective colleges, there was this stalling out um, that advocates pointed to that lasted from the mid-1990s until about 2010. Um, but another interesting finding in my report is that uh, over the past 10 years or so, you've actually seen Asian shares at these selective colleges going up again. So one possible explanation for that is that, that there's been so much attention given to this issue that colleges are very attentive to the appearance that they're discriminating against Asian students and, and have rethought um, what they're doing there. Some cast affirmative action as a form of race-based discrimination, whereas others say it's really about helping minority groups. So what's your take? Well, the, the, I think it's by definition discrimination. What, what, what um, schools do is they use race as what they call a plus factor, and the Supreme Court has said they can do that. They're, they're admitting that they're, they're discriminating in a way. They're treating similar uh, applicants differently on the basis of race. The question is, uh, is it okay for the government to do that? Um, the, the argument for it would be that you know some groups are historically disadvantaged in this country. They're still disadvantaged to this day, so you give them a leg up and help them out. Um, and, and also that um, colleges have an interest in having a diverse uh, student population. And oddly enough, in the in the legal precedent, the diversity rationale is actually what uh, schools are required to argue when they're defending their policies in court, um, oddly enough. Um, I mean, personally, I, I think that, that uh, college admissions should not be based on race. I, I think it's it's wrong, for especially for the government, public schools, um, to be using race as a factor. The government should be using race-blind admissions. Um, but with the, in the case of, of Asians specifically, though, I think it's very interesting that colleges don't admit using race against them, that you have to sort of dig into the data to see that. Robert Verbruggen, fellow at the Manhattan Institute, thank you. Up next, working from home or working in the office. One major U.S. bank is giving in to employees' demands for more remote working. And the NFL draft starts tonight, and only the best of the best get chosen at the top. See who those long-suffering fans want their teams to pick. That and more coming up. Nation Speaks, we don't just scratch the surface. We want to go wide and deep. Our viewers come away with a much richer understanding of the issues of the day. We really make a big effort to bring on different voices onto the show. We don't just talk to experts and newsmakers, which of course are extremely important, but we also want to hear from the American people. So the people who are impacted by the policies and issues that we're talking about, because what they have to say is just as important to the national conversation. This is the hot topic all over Wall Street. Should employees be working from home or working in the office? Reportedly, big bank JP Morgan is now giving in, allowing some of its workers to come into the office less so they can work virtually. NTD's Phil Zoe reports. Working from home or working in the office, that's the big question since the pandemic started two years ago. And we've gotten used to uh, a sense of comfort of working from our house. Uni Turatini is a human connection expert. One topic she covers is employee well-being. We've gotten used to not being, uh, having to commute back and forth to work, which leaves us more time to, to actually work and also more time to spend with our friends and family. George Randall is a partner at Talent Wargroup and has over 20 years of experience at Fortune 100 companies. He agrees. You know, I'd be at work at 6.37 in the morning after I left the gym, but when I was coming home, it was rush hour traffic. I would lose anywhere from 60 to 90 minutes of productivity a day, and I would have to plan for that. That could be one reason why bankers at J.P. Morgan are pushing back on its return to office mandate. According to Business Insider, some departments used to require three days a week back in the office. Now it's been reduced to only two days a week. Personally, um, I prefer having some in-person time. 
Christopher Abbas knows a few things about managing workers, scaling his team from zero to 100 employees since the pandemic started. So I would start by you know, asking people, what do you want to do? Um, and then use the data to inform your decisions. Um, and that's really how every company should work. Major banks like Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan Chase have said in the past, the ultimate goal is for more workers to return five days a week. Our experts say there's merit to that. Connection can be done virtually or in person. Now, it's always better when we can connect in person, seeing people, looking each other in the eyes and communicating also uh, observing our body language. There is a big benefit to having people back together, breaking bread. You can't replace those drive-by conversations at the water cooler, in the kitchen, getting coffee or getting refreshments or eating lunch. There's a certain value to that. Phil Zoe, NTD News, New York. The federal government charged and arrested the founder of New York-based hedge fund Arcagos Capital Management and its former chief financial officer for fraud and racketeering. They appeared in court on Wednesday and pleaded not guilty. Here are the details. Archegos Capital Management's owner, Bill Huang, and its former chief financial officer, Patrick Holligan, both pleaded not guilty in a federal court in Manhattan on Wednesday. This is what the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission says about the case. Starting in 2020 and continuing through March 2021, Wong and others propped up Archegos as a $36 billion house of cards. They did so by engaging in a constant cycle of, of manipulative trading, by lying to banks to obtain additional trading capacity, and then by using that additional capacity to engage in still more manipulative trading. Archegos, which is a family office, defaulted on margin calls in March of last year. The blow-up cost global banks, including Credit Suisse, Nomura Holdings, Morgan Stanley, and Deutsche Bank, more than $10 billion in losses. Prosecutors say it nearly jeopardized our financial system. This scheme was historic in scope. The lies fed the inflation, and the inflation fed more lies. Round and round it went. Huang has 11 counts against him, including racketeering, market manipulation and fraud. And Holligan has three charges against him. If proven, each charge carries a maximum prison sentence of 20 years. This case is yet another example of our commitment to holding individuals, and not just corporate actors, accountable for misleading the markets and financial institutions. Huang and Holligan will make their next court appearance on May 19th. The first round of the NFL draft starts tonight, and both the New York Jets and Giants have multiple picks in the top 10. NTD's Dave Martin has more. The Jets own picks 4 and 10, while the Giants pick 5th and 7th, giving each flailing franchise an opportunity to draft multiple stars, or possibly trade for an established one. But what do their fans want them to do? We asked New Yorkers. I think the Jets really need to build out their offensive line. That's been a struggle. Their defense looks pretty good this year. The Giants always need to focus on the offensive line, and it seems like Gettleman has done that over the past few years, but it just never has been a fit. I kind of always lean for defense. I know today it's all offense, but i kind of old-fashioned. I like the 17-10 to 10 games, and I still miss Lawrence Taylor. I think the Jets are actually a team that they're not that far away from getting to where they want to get. I mean, I know there's rumors that maybe they traded away that pick for Debo Samuel. I think that would be pretty dope. ESPN is reporting that the Giants have declined the fifth-year option on quarterback Daniel Jones' rookie contract, inviting the possibility they'll draft his successor. The draft starts at 8 o'clock with the Jacksonville Jaguars picking first. Dave Martin, NTD News. And in the NBA playoffs, three game sixes are on the schedule tonight as the Suns, Mavericks and Sixers are all up three games to two and looking to clinch. NTD's Dave Martin has more. The Sixers play the Raptors north of the border tonight, which means that unvaccinated guard Matisse Thibel won't be with them. Toronto, however, may be without the services of Fred Van Fleet, who's doubtful with the hip injury. With wins in games four and five, the Raptors are attempting to do what no NBA team has done before, come back from a 3-0 deficit. Phoenix is at New Orleans in the second game. The Suns may be able to get back leading scorer Devin Booker as early as tonight after straining his hamstring on April 19th. 
Phoenix has been led by Chris Paul, who's averaging 20 points and 12 assists in the series. Finally, Dallas looks to close out the Jazz in the late game. All-star guard Luka Doncic has made his presence felt since returning, leading the Mavericks in scoring both games. In other NBA news, reigning MVP Nikola Jokic had his season end last night at the hands of the Warriors, and speculation immediately swirled about his future in Denver. Jokic is eligible to receive a five-year, $254 million extension, an offer he says he would accept. Dave Martin, NT News. Now that former U.S. Marine Trevor Reed has been released from Russia, attention is turning to detained WNBA star Brittany Griner. The U.S. State Department says she's at the top of their list. When it comes to Brittany Griner, we are working very closely uh, with her team. Uh, her case is a top priority for us. I can uh, tell you that with the utmost certainty. Griner was arrested at a Moscow airport in mid-February after Russian authorities alleged they found cannabis oil in her luggage. Her case is still unresolved and her detention has been extended to May 19th. The U.S. consulate visited Griner and reported she was in good shape. The 31-year-old plays her off-seasons in Russia, where she earns in excess of a million dollars a season, roughly four times what she makes in the WNBA. The WNBA season is set to start on May 6th. Multiple witnesses have testified in the Johnny Depp trial over the last couple of days. NTD's Jason Perry brings us up to speed on this high-profile case. So we could talk privately. Maybe she felt more comfortable that way. Still, they denied that there was any crime. Melissa Sines was one of two police officers who initially responded to a domestic violence 911 call. It happened in 2016 and it involved Amber Heard and Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp was gone before the officers arrived. During that second conversation, did you determine whether or not she had an injury? I determined that she did not have any injuries. Sines partner, Officer Tyler Haddon, stood at a distance from Heard. Did you see any marks on her face either the first time you observed her that night or the second time you observed her? Just the redness, for, which was consistent with her crying. There was also a second 911 call on that same night for domestic disturbance at Johnny Depp's penthouse that Officer William Gatlin responded to. Yeah, we got another call. I don't know if it's related to the same call from earlier. The person who answered the door said the police had already been there and everything was okay. The police then requested to have a look inside. We just need to come in and make sure that everybody's okay. No change in the circumstance from the previous call, so we did not go further into investigation. Alejandro Romero worked at the front desk of the residential building. I am just so stressed out because of this. I just don't want to deal with this anymore. I'm tired. I don't want to deal with this court case. Everybody got problems. He also denied noticing any injuries on Heard's face when he spoke with her. And on Thursday, jurors heard from Terrence Darty of the American Civil Liberties Union. It was the ACLU that drafted the op-ed that was published under Amber Heard's name. That was the article that Johnny Depp said defamed him. Jason Perry, NTD News. Coming up, a California law from 1872 limits a hotel's liability to $1,000. The problem is, $1,000 back then is worth only a fraction of that today. And an exhibit showcasing the life and philosophy of Bruce Lee opens at a museum in the late martial artist's hometown of San Francisco. That and more here on NTD News. Imagine you're staying at a hotel and they lose your suitcase containing $8,000 worth of items. Then the hotel pays you only a fraction of that. That's what happened in California because of a loophole in the law. NTD's Arian Pazdar has the details. A California law enacted in 1872 limits a hotel's liability to $1,000. Now many say the law is outdated. That's mostly because $1,000 back then is only worth around $50 today. According to ABC, the guest had various items such as laptops and even a hard drive with his social security number and tax returns in the suitcase at the Marriott Marquis in San Francisco. 
He sued the hotel, won, and was awarded $5,000. Later, the hotel appealed on grounds of the law enacted in 1872. The hotel won the appeal, and they had to pay the guest only around $1,500. A professor at the University of California, Berkeley, says this law and others should probably be changed. Well, there are all kinds of rules and regulations and laws that were enacted long ago, and some even recently, uh, that perhaps could be usefully and sensibly updated. but. Legislatures and regulators don't always get around to updating them in a very prompt fashion. According to ABC, a San Francisco Superior Court judge also says the law didn't achieve an equitable outcome in this case. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. Two parents in Chicago are suing a school after their 15-year-old son committed suicide this January. The student was allegedly bullied for a false rumor saying he's unvaccinated. The boys' parents, Robert and Rosaline Bronstein, accused the Latin School of Chicago of willful failure to do anything about the bullying. The boy who committed suicide was vaccinated against COVID-19, but another student allegedly spread a false rumor saying he was unvaccinated. The parents say both they and their son had contacted school administrators dozens of times about the bullying, but the school turned a blind eye. The school responded to the lawsuit saying allegations of wrongdoing by the school officials are inaccurate and misplaced. The prestigious private school says it will defend itself in court. California's Attorney General and 15 other states are suing USPS. They allege that the Postal Service plans to buy gas-powered delivery vehicles, which they say violates legal precedent. NTD's David Lamb reports. On Thursday, April 28th, California Attorney General Rob Bonta filed a lawsuit against the United States Postal Service. The lawsuit claims that USPS violated legal precedents and failed to consider the environment over its plan to replace 90% of its fleet with fossil fuel-powered vehicles instead of electrical vehicles. USPS said it has thoroughly followed existing regulations. According to the lawsuit, USPS has the largest civilian vehicle fleet in the world, consisting of over 212,000 vehicles, many of which are near the end of their useful lives. Prosecutors say that USPS violated regulations by allegedly signing contracts with a defense contractor six months before releasing its draft environmental review. Bonta said, once this purchase goes through, we'll be stuck with more than 100,000 new gas-guzzling vehicles on neighborhood streets. Bonta was joined by 15 other attorney generals from different states, including New York, Connecticut, Delaware, and the District of Columbia. In response, USPS said it has conducted a robust and thorough review and fully complied with all of our obligations under environmental law. USPS has said it expects the vehicles to begin appearing on carrier routes in late 2023. The modern vehicles will replace many 30-year-old USPS vehicles that lack airbags, other safety equipment, and even air conditioning. David Lamb, Entity News, California. A new exhibit gives a rare and educational look into the life and mind of global martial arts icon Bruce Lee. It's currently on display at the Chinese Historical Society of America in San Francisco, just two blocks from where Lee was born. Bruce Lee, a man of many talents and achievements, is being honored in a new exhibit showcasing his life and legacy. The exhibit just opened this week in the place where Lee was born in San Francisco's Chinatown. Justin Hoover, the executive director for the Chinese Historical Society of America, says the display is to show Lee as more than just an actor and martial artist. It's designed around four core concepts, Bruce Lee as the thinker, the visionary, an athlete, and as a unifier. We all know Bruce Lee as a silver star screen, a kung fu master, you know, but you don't always think of him as a business innovator. You don't always think of him as a philosopher. You don't always think of him as an artist, but he is these things and we have the documents to prove it. The exhibit has a plethora of rare memorabilia and items from Lee's personal life, like this weight bench. There's also a space in the back with an immersive multimedia experience. 
And I was impressed to see how much he put into not just studying the martial arts, but also philosophy. Hoover also said that the exhibit wants to show how Bruce Lee broke a lot of barriers. You know, he pioneered a lot. It was in cinema, it was in business, um, even in athletics. You know, people see him often as a martial artist, but they don't realize that he was a champion winning cha-cha-cha dancer. He was a fencer. He was a weightlifter. He was one of the first martial artists to adopt Western boxing techniques. He looked up to Joe Lewis and he looked up to Muhammad Ali, you know. The show is being featured at the Chinese Historical Society of America Museum. Both the museum and the exhibit creators hope the show will help revitalize the Chinatown neighborhood in San Francisco after experiencing a harsh two years due to pandemic lockdowns. Jason Blair, NTD News, San Francisco. Coming up, Shanghai COVID restrictions move a step further using mesh wires to block entrances. Some are saying the lockdowns hurt more than the virus. And today is Holocaust Remembrance Day in Israel. The country came to a standstill for two minutes this morning to commemorate the victims of the Nazi genocide. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. Navigating a world of economic madness, you need to have the right guide. What did today's decisions mean for your tomorrow? We ask why, what's the alternative? Uncover the deeper reasons and the hidden influences and highlight the real opportunities for profit. At Entity Business, we connect the dots for you. Good evening. Shanghai's lockdown restrictions are getting stricter. Residents say their situation is getting worse with the implementation of what they're calling hard isolation. Let's take a look at what's going on. Abiding by Beijing's zero COVID-19 policy, Shanghai strengthened its lockdown rules on Friday. Starting last weekend, authorities began to apply a policy they call hard isolation in some areas. The strategy follows its name literally. Under it, authorities use iron fences and barricades to block off residential buildings. As of Sunday, some areas in Shanghai have been locked down for almost 50 days. The city's Pudong district has been shuttered for nearly 30 days of lockdown, while the hard isolation policy has been in place since Saturday and Pudong isn't alone. Pictures and videos circulating online show the strengthened rules are being enforced in multiple areas of Shanghai. In one of them, a woman was seen arguing with a man who came to seal her apartment unit's entrance. She told him all residents left in the unit are all senior citizens, women and minors, and called it dangerous for them to be sealed inside with no way out. Some roads have also been blocked off with iron fences. Locals are raising concerns that the hard isolation policy will further worsen what's been called Shanghai's humanitarian disaster. The virus in our lives does not threaten people. Rather, the authorities' wrong policy produces a political virus. This political virus has harmed the general public. But some residents are fighting back against the new rules. Videos reveal that in some residential compounds, residents are removing the newly installed wire mesh blocking the front of their buildings. And pandemic control workers don't appear to be stopping them. Other clips show that in some residential compounds, authorities actually failed to install the iron fences at all, with residents blocking them from doing so. The police specialize in restricting your freedom, not allowing you to go outside. They don't care if you starve to death. I told them, the Communist Party is a party without human nature. It does not know how to behave as a human being. It is not a regime elected by the people, so it is not subject to the constraints of the people. On the contrary, the regime has brainwashed people, distorting the facts, reversing black and white, controlling public opinion, and controlling the people's right to speak. One Shanghai resident, surnamed Hu, says he believes the Chinese people's resentment toward the Chinese Communist Party has reached its peak, spurred on by the tightening restrictions. Sirens blared across Israel, and the country came to a standstill earlier this morning for Holocaust Memorial Day. 
The country held ceremonies throughout the day honoring the six million Jews murdered during the Nazi genocide. NTD's Allison Lee has more. Across Israel on Thursday morning, people halted where they were walking and drivers stopped their cars and bowed their heads for two minutes in memory of the victims of the Holocaust. The annual Holocaust Memorial Day on April 28th is one of the most solemn days of the year in Israel. The country's prime minister delivered a speech at a Holocaust memorial on Wednesday night. My brothers and sisters, the Holocaust is an unprecedented event in human history. I take the trouble to say this because as the years go by, there is more and more discourse in the world that compares other difficult events to the Holocaust. But no, even the most difficult wars today are not the Holocaust and are not comparable to the Holocaust. The Prime Minister also warned Israelis against internal division. My brothers and sisters, we cannot, we simply cannot allow the same dangerous gene of factionalism dismantle Israel from within. Israel makes great effort to memorialize the victims of the Holocaust and make heroes of the survivors. Restaurants and places of entertainment remained closed on Thursday. Radios play somber music and TV stations air documentaries on the Holocaust. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. Some Ukrainian soldiers trapped in the besieged city of Mariupol are pleading for help. They want to evacuate civilians and troops who are holed up in a steel plant. NTD's Jessica Beatty reports. In this video posted online Wednesday, a Ukrainian Marine commander in Mariupol urged the international community to help evacuate Ukrainian fighters and hundreds of civilians trapped in the Azovstal steel plant. There are more than 600 wounded in our unit. The wounds are of various seriousness. In here, there are no conditions, no medications, no personnel that could help them. There are also wounded civilians. We try to help as much as we can. The deputy commander of the Azov Regiment is also calling on world leaders to help organize a third party for evacuations. He says civilians should exit first and then the soldiers. We military commanders want our boys to remain alive, but not in captivity. They will be killed in captivity. The Azovstal steel factory is the last remaining Ukrainian stronghold in Mariupol. The city is crucial to Russian efforts to secure a land bridge to the Crimean Peninsula, which it annexed from Ukraine in 2014. The deputy commander says Russian tactics are constantly changing. The tactic now is like a medieval siege. We're encircled, but they are no longer throwing lots of force into breaking our defensive line. They are conducting airstrikes. Last week, Russian leader Vladimir Putin claimed control of the city. He said the plant should be sealed off so that not a fly could escape. The deputy commander says they're running out of supplies, but his forces will fight for as long as needed. As long as our troops are here, as long as we're here and we're holding the defense, as long as we resist, as Rostov is located in the city of Muropol, the city is not theirs. Meanwhile, Vladimir Putin Wednesday warned that Moscow would mount a quick response if Western powers intervene in Ukraine. Putin said his military wouldn't hesitate to use Russia's most advanced weaponry. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. The EU Commission proposes extending the COVID passport scheme to June 2023. Though COVID cases are dropping in Europe, there are signs a new round of vaccination mandates might be implemented by member states. NTD's France correspondent David Vives spoke to a member of the European Parliament about her concerns on this topic. Following a drop in COVID cases, EU countries such as Denmark, Sweden and Ireland decided on April the 17th to lift their travel restrictions. But any respite from vaccine mandates might be short-lived. The EU Commission proposes extending the COVID certificate scheme by a year to June 2023. The COVID certificate or vaccine passport is a document issued on paper or digitally that proves the holder has been vaccinated. Member of European Parliament Virginie Joron says MEPs will vote on the extension in the coming weeks. The vaccine passport was set to end in June 2022, but they asked us to renew the extension to June 2023. If that happens, then EU countries will have to follow suit. 
Joron says the Commission gives a framework for EU countries to follow. It is designed to incite governments to pass restrictive measures. In other words, it is up to each country to impose a mandate on the population. Each member state must choose its own strategy to force people to get the jab. That's the goal, as the vaccine is considered a miracle cure for COVID. In Italy, for example, they have been very abrupt. They prevented senior citizens from withdrawing money from the bank if they refused the shot. The vaccine passport extension also introduces new mandates. One of them is to meet the minimum number of chaps not only in the country you're traveling from, but also in the country you're heading to. 73% of people in EU countries have been fully vaccinated so far. Joron says she was one of the MEPs who asked for transparency around contracts between the EU Commission and Pfizer. Let me show you the contract. This is the contract. You see? You see here. Look, it is written, sensitive. But she says the EU Commission got hacked and the contracts have been leaked to her. They allow the vaccine's distribution to the EU market, but there's more to it contractual obligations around EU countries buying more doses. Another interesting point we found is that there are two different contracts. One is between Pfizer and the EU Commission, who purchase the doses, and the other is between the EU Commission and a country. The contract allows Pfizer to be compensated if the country don't purchase enough doses. Poland has seen lower vaccine uptake than much of Europe and already sold or donated 30 million surplus doses. But the country is legally bound by its contract with Pfizer to buy another 67 million doses. Poland's health minister said last week that Poland won't pay for them, triggering a contract dispute with the pharmaceutical giant. Joron says the EU is working on several other projects related to the pandemic. One new measure would mandate non-EU citizens to get jabs if they want to enter EU countries. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. A company in Italy has developed robots that can make marble sculptures using sophisticated software. The works once might have taken a sculptor years to complete, but these robots can finish them in just days. Italian company Robotor has come up with a new type of robot named Bot1, which can precision sculpt works of art. It took the team years to develop the software that controls the robot's movements. But not everyone is convinced that this is the right way forward. One of them is the president of the Cooperative of Sculptors of Carrara in Italy. A sculpture refined by a robot is a dead sculpture. But when refined by an artisan, as far as I'm concerned, it's a live sculpture, a fresh sculpture, a real sculpture. For me, a sculpture cannot be made by a robot because it has to be done by hand. It is something which has to be done together by the artisan and the artist. There has to be this symbiosis. The artist who puts in the art and the inspiration and the marble artisan who produces with his hands the work which the artist has entrusted him to make. The team members behind the robot defend their creation. They say the robot doesn't steal people's jobs because it requires humans to operate. One of the co-founders of the company also says such robots have great potential. This because it helps artisans in their physical efforts, allowing them to specialize in the finishing touches, which are what makes the difference, as well as making them competitive in the market, which is extremely demanding in terms of production and timing and exhibitions. So those who want to remain in the world of production of contemporary art have to equip themselves with the necessary technological instruments. A professor of robotics at Sapienza University of Rome says robots are moving out of the factories and are increasingly used in the art world. He says what is new is the symbiosis between artists and technology from block of marble to finished sculpture. It's not new, but what is new is the integration between uh, uh, the whole of the whole process. So from the design of the object, which can be made uh, on the computer with CAD tools, to the programming of the robot, to the choice of the tools, the proper tools for doing the operation, until the supervisory part, which is still there from artists that completes the job. The team that created the robot plans to enable precision sculpture of not only marble, but also of plastic and wood. They arrange the production of statues commissioned by some of the world's leading artists and also replicate archaeological pieces or statues which have been damaged or destroyed. 
Coming up, a 64-year-old Illinois woman inspires people with her favorite hobby, ice skating. And she's competing with women half her age. Learn more in just a minute on NTD News. Four-year-old woman is defying her age. She's competing in a sport that is mostly dominated by younger women, and she's excelling at it. Here's more. Most competitive ice skaters retire from competition in their late 20s, but not Cindy Kraus from Crystal Lake, Illinois. She's turned her childhood hobby into a flourishing passion, and at 64, she's on top of her game. I actually skated recreationally when I was a child up until I was 14 and then I was off the ice for almost 35 years and so when I came back to the ice uh, I was 47. Picking up a physical sport at middle age is no small feat. I constantly have to um, work on my flexibility. You know, the younger women and, and men come in and it's amazing. They can just pick their legs up over their heads. Falling on the ice is another challenge, but to Kraus, it's just an opportunity to get better. I'm an expert at falling. Um, that's really one of the keys to skating. You need to not be afraid. Um, falling is just fine, and getting up is just great. So, you know, you just really learn to relax into it. Skating is just so enjoyable, though, so uh, every, every little challenge was really just an opportunity to learn more and to, to do more. Enjoying figure skating is one thing, but Krauss wants to stay motivated. Her coach suggested competition. At the competitive level, it is quite demanding, and it's a very physical sport. Um, you have to have balance and speed. You have to have agility and flexibility. You need power. You need stamina and endurance. Anything is possible when you have the heart for it. In April, Krauss won first place in the U.S. Adult Gold Ladies Free Skate Competition, which is for the age group between 55 and 65 years old. She was also ranked number seven in Championship Adult Gold Ladies, competing with women in their 20s and 30s. Skating is my zen. Skating puts me into that mode of uh, the rest of the world just disappears and melts away. And um, there's just this feeling of freedom that you have that you can do anything. Cindy Krause has proven one thing, you're never too old to learn and succeed if you have the passion to do it. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.